This is CB Talks, a podcast from SilverCloud Health, the leading global provider of evidence-based well-being and behavioral health solutions. I am Dr. Jorge Palacios, and in each episode in this series, I sit down with leading mental health practitioners, advocates, and users as together we explore the science of digital mental health. Now, there is a wide talk and acceptance of a crisis of mental health, which has gotten worse due to the effects of the pandemic. And of course, children and young people have not been immune to these effects. There are unique qualities in this age group that make the mental health crisis an urgent matter to address. And this is precisely what I'll be discussing today with my two guests, Dr. Anthony Sasong and Dr. Catherine Young. Dr. Sasong is Chief Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Amwell. Amwell provides telehealth services across the U.S. and connects patients with doctors virtually via secure video appointments. Dr. Catherine Young is a digital health scientist at SilverCloud. Her research focuses on how digital interventions can be used to treat mental health problems with a particular focus on children and young people. So, Tony, Katie, thank you both so much for joining this podcast, which I think is um, not only going to be quite interesting, but it's very much needed. It's it's a conversation that that should be had across the field of mental health, digital health. You know what we all do and and, and take a great interest in. So, I look forward to it. Can I start by asking first you, Tony, a little bit about your background? But, you know, specifically, why or how, how did you come to take an interest in, in young people's mental health specifically? And look, if there's anything from your background that we cannot Google or see on your LinkedIn profile, then all the better. Sure. So as a bit of background, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm dual board certified in general psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. I completed medical school at UCSF in the joint medical program between uh, UC Berkeley and UCSF Medical School. And as I progressed through training, I, I found myself more and more interested in cognitive neuroscience and in particular the learning process and development, which led me very directly to both a, a love of pediatrics and of neuroscience and, and specifically uh, in psychiatry. So I ultimately chose to pursue training in a five-year program at Harvard Medical School at uh, Mass General and McLean Hospital where I spent a year doing pediatrics training and then completed general psychiatry residency and subspecialized in child and adolescent psychiatry. During the process, I was doing my own sort of exploratory uh, process and, and learning about uh, what it was that I really wanted to focus on. Looking back, I, I think it's a very, very important field. And the more I learned, the more uh, important it becomes to me you know, suicide is now the second leading cause of death in people aged 10 to 34. So, you know, this is a this is an absolute crisis that we're having. And 50% of, of psychiatric illness that goes on to be chronic starts by age 14 and 75% by age 24. So we're, we're talking about the bulk of illness developing between these critical years. And ultimately, I, I really do enjoy a balance between clinical work and working with a, a larger population at larger scale. Well, thanks. And you, you, you mentioned a couple of things there that I, I want to go back to, um, but I'll, I'll let Katie introduce herself as well. And, and also, Katie, from your perspective, why is it so key or why was it so interesting for you to focus on, on this particular 
population. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm Katie Young. I'm a digital health scientist for SilverCloud. I'm relatively new to SilverCloud. In the last six months, I joined. And prior to that, I was working as an academic, most recently at King's College in London, um, where I was a lecturer. And I was running my own research team where we were focusing on young people's mental health, um, specifically, actually in common with you, Tony, from a neuroscience background, I was also really interested in cognitive neuroscience and thinking about how we can use our understanding about the brain to better inform the types of interventions that we might want to use with young people, particularly around emotional problems. Just after my undergrad, I took a year to work for a children's charity and sort of seeing the diversity of challenges that those kids had and how, you know, even small sort of activities and small moments of pleasure really made a difference uh, in their lives. And so we go out and do fun things and just sort of hearing from families and hearing how much of an impact that had for kids' lives, just in terms of having something to look forward to, having a way to make friends in a sort of non-judgmental environment. That's something I kind of carried with me afterwards. And I suppose the other side of it is, you know, going through that period of life myself and into sort of early adulthood, like, everyone faces challenges with their mental health. And I definitely had periods of feeling low or feeling more worried, but I consider myself pretty lucky in comparison to a lot of my friends who, you know, maybe experienced that to a greater degree than me and, you know, other friends who experienced it less. And I think that's the other real interest of mine is trying to understand why, you know, these experiences affect us in such different ways. Again, how can we learn from that to help support people at that particularly sort of precarious stage of life? You're absolutely right about bringing back to that personal thing. I mean, we we all obviously went through that period and can everyone can recall a particularly stressful moment. Um, but it's, you know, when that becomes overwhelming and Tony, you kind of started um, discussing a couple of stats, and I, I want to, just to start to, I mean, not, we don't need to roll out um, many statistics, but we do need to focus a little bit about this, this problem. It is indeed a crisis, and it's a crisis that's been brewing for a while. I don't like to simplify the narrative by saying pre- and post-pandemic. This um, was already happening surveys talk about the last 10, 15, 20 years, right, where the rates of suicide started to increase. But, you know, I think it's definitely true that it's been exacerbated by the pandemic, right? So what can you tell me, Tony, I mean, building from these these stats about this, why, why would you call it a crisis now? What's changed uh, in the last couple of years for you? And why is it seemingly like top of the agenda or why is it grabbing more headlines now more than ever do you think yeah i think it's a really good question and you alluded to the the notion of pre and post pandemic or really recent and more remote depression has been in the top five causes of disability for the last three decades and it's stayed there it's now the number one cause of disability worldwide so we're talking about something that affects everyone in the world and I think the crisis actually comes from from a couple of places. One is that we're we're recognizing and talking about some of these illnesses that have actually been persistent for a long time. And with that recognition and detection comes this surge in youth and adults who are in desperate need of treatment and a waning uh, supply of 
therapists and psychiatrists with whom to uh, seek treatment. So I think it's a it's a critical time in in medicine in in general because number one these are being recognized. And number two, we are just not prepared for this overwhelming burden of illness that we all suspected was there, but now is becoming really apparent. And Katie, I mean, do, do you think there's other factors that contribute? And I know you've said this to me, and I, I'd love for you to touch on this as well, is this changing profile of the people who seek out support, right? Like, what, what can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I think is, you know, it's it's such a double-edged sword really of, you know, there's this increasing recognition and earlier detection of mental health problems, which is incredibly important. And I think it's also, there's been a change in stigma in the last sort of five to 10 years. It's increasingly acceptable to talk about your mental health and it's it's encouraged and people are encouraged to seek uh, support where they are. You know, we see stories from celebrities and other public figures all the time about the mental health challenges they've faced. And it's really, I think, increased that normalization of that experience. But it also seems that the sort of profile of somebody who's seeking psychiatric help or psychological help at this point is likely to have changed um, in parallel with that. You know, people who are starting to recognize these challenges or recognizing them at an earlier stage are going and seeking support which is great, but it's very different perhaps to the people who are only seeking services once they got to a, a sort of more severe level. Yeah, Katie, I, w- I would agree with that completely. And I, I would add too that the immediacy of social media has, has added a, a, a huge dynamic to social development. We know that one of the biggest risk factors in youth for completing suicide is that level of impulsivity. And that's compounded, of course, by experiments with substance use and the vicissitudes of adolescence, frankly. But when you add the immediacy of social media, that intense feeling of social pressure, and the individual is alone potentially at the time that they're being surrounded by these voices, you know, speaking through social media, uh, it can be really overwhelming. And, and that impulsivity compounded by that social pressure can be just tremendously overwhelming. Yeah. And I, I find a lot of irony in, in social media and how it's called social and it, yet it creates a lot of isolation. And yeah, I mean, isolation has increased physically due to the pandemic, but this mental isolation of, I mean, I have to present a different version of myself, but in reality, what I'm feeling is something that I can't really share, um, either because of the pressures, but also because it's hard to define. I mean, I, I, I want to ask you, Tony, as, um, as a psychiatrist, working psychiatrist, is it getting harder or easier for, for young people to define what they're feeling? I mean, can they express it? Obviously, seeing celebrities and some of their you know, sports stars or whatever people they look up to talking about it. But yet, you know, people talk about mental health and stress, et cetera. But like, is there struggle with really pinpointing what it is that they're feeling or what they're attributing it to? And is that an issue in treating this age group, especially from a neurodevelopmental perspective, you know, where, you know, the brain is changing all the time. And Right. So you mentioned a couple of things that I, I think are, are absolutely spot on. One is the attribution of feelings, which can be very difficult even for an adult. You know, I, I worked extensively with a population with early to severe dementia. And one thing that I noted frequently was that people would develop feelings of anxiety. Uh, and those feelings persisted despite perhaps forgetting what 
happened to trigger that. So you'd see somebody talk about their feelings of anxiety. They'd be clearly distraught, but they'd attribute that sort of to whatever it was in the moment that they could grasp onto as an explanatory model. And that would actually fluctuate over time. That anxiety would persist, but the attribution would change. And I think that's true throughout adulthood and uh, throughout early development, that people really do look for a reason for feeling the way they feel, but it's not always attributed to the correct stimulus. Uh, the other thing you, you asked is whether or not we can express ourselves and talk about our feelings and whether youth are able to do that. I think that, Katie, as you said, the, the stigma, as it lessens, we have more of a vocabulary to describe those things. But I don't think that changes the moment-to-moment fluctuation in mood that latency-aged children and adolescents face and teens face moment to moment. Those are intense and fluctuating emotions that are hard to keep track of. So I think it's easier to put words to things, but harder to really recognize how one is feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think those are really, really good insights, Tony. Um, And Katie, you also have this, obviously, this um, neurological uh, interest and perspective. From a neurodevelopmental point of view, why is it so key then to to intervene at at this stage. Um, Do you have anything to add from that perspective? Yeah, so I mean, this touches a lot of what uh, Tony has kind of already mentioned. Um, But I think one of the models that we have around emotional development during adolescence is about how we have both this kind of peak sensitivity to emotional stimuli and also haven't quite developed all the skills and the the regulatory tools to kind of control those emotions in some way. There's this um, analogy that I come across quite a lot in sort of adolescent neurodevelopmental literature that it's, you know, It's like driving a car with no brakes in that you have all these emotions going on and you don't have the the skills or the tools to be able to to control them. I think that is a bit of an oversimplification. We know, of course, adolescents are developing and they have lots of ways of coping around skills, you know, developing skills to recognize their emotions, to control their anger, things like that. But I think it's maybe more helpful to think about adolescence as the period where we're really learning how effective those breaks are, we're learning how to control them, and we're, you know, at a really good age to to begin to learn different types of skills. So sort of neurobiologically, you know, we have these subcortical brain regions that are sensitive to emotional stimuli, and they're quite mature by adolescence. But the sort of prefrontal brain regions, so the sort of frontal part of the brain that's involved in kind of rational decision-making and controlling these emotions, we know that those are not fully developed until early to mid-20s, really. Um, So you almost don't have the full biological sort of set of controls for the emotions that you're experiencing. But at the same time, it means that these circuits are still kind of malleable and adaptive. So if you could intervene during this period to help young people learn these skills or to sort of really ingrain those skills at an early age, they're sort of then potentially well set up to be able to manage their emotions in an adaptive and healthy way, you know, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and it's a good analogy. I I just add that it's like driving a car with no brakes and no steering wheel and, you know, three (laughs) wheels, no roof. Like, it's just, at least that's what it was for me. (laughs) Probably why I crashed it once or twice, Um, just between you and me and everybody listening. So, um, Tony, anything you can add from an epidemiological perspective or a wider societal perspective I'll just say, uh, as an add-on to that question, again, this is from a survey I saw, but 
the vast majority of parents said that at some point they had missed work due to their children's mental health issues or anxieties where it was interrupted. So we can't forget that, you know, young people obviously live within this context that includes the family, that includes their friends, that includes, you know, their peers. So why is it important at, at that level to act on this age group? And what could be the knock-on effect by intervening with young people um, to help other aspects of society and the economy, really, you know? Yeah, I think disorders of mental health affect the individual and family and, and caregivers and the community at large. I mean, it, everyone is really at risk. And it's such a pervasive and debilitating set of disorders that it really deserves the attention at an epidemiological and a, a sort of larger level. And on an individual basis, I think what Katie said is really important, that the prefrontal cortex and some of those top-down breaks that we have from the latest developing parts of the brain, uh, the parts that, that go into the 20s and put the brakes on some of those impulses that are developed earlier on, are so important to just keeping kids alive. You know, I, we talk a lot about suicide and, and what an impact that has on mortality in this age group, but accidents are also up there and those are directly correlated with that impulsivity. And Katie, I love the analogy of the breaks that you brought up. I often talk about that sense of being so susceptible to influences uh, emotionally as being like an emotional sunburn that uh, sometimes you know, normally someone brushing by us and, you know, brushing the skin on our arm wouldn't bother us. But uh, if we have a sunburn, you notice everything and it feels very painful and it gets our attention. And I think that uh, naturally as, as kids move through phases of development, they are attuned to that. And that's their social job. That's their developmental job is to be attuned and to learn how they fit into the world socially. So that's important and it has a huge impact on development. And there are these phases of development that are, are sort of timely and important for further development. And these critical windows of, of learning, social emotional learning as well, that really have to go in a stepwise fashion. And so what we see is if those skills aren't learned at the time that they're really necessary as building blocks, things can stall out even into adulthood. Another good analogy there. I, I love a good analogy and that's that's two for two. So thanks. Thanks so much. So, okay. I mean, we could talk about this for a while and it's um, it's great, but I, I do want to move to, you know, talking a little bit about, okay, what's the solution? So first of all, what has worked in the past in terms of um, interventions? Um, you could talk about CBT, for example, Tony, and it would be good for our our listeners to hear a little bit about, you know, the key aspects of psychological therapy that work for children and adolescents. Do you mind taking this one? Yeah. So, I, and, and Katie, I, I'd love for you to weigh in on this too, because it's so close to what you've been focused on. I, I think that you mentioned CBT and, and for those who are unfamiliar, cognitive behavioral therapy is a paradigm of treatment that's very evidence-based and, and shows very good efficacy in the literature. It's based on the interplay of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The idea is that all of these things interplay, and it's almost as if you're moving in a circle. 
kind of going around and looking at these three things over and over. But every time you come back to the beginning, you've learned a little more. So like all phases of learning, it's kind of like a cylinder. You sort of spiral around and you learn a little more. And so you go up a level and up a level and up a level. And with that in mind, these are skill building types of therapies that do allow for some remediation of skills that may have been missed. Katie, if you want to jump in there, I'd, I'd love to come back and talk a little more about the workforce and how we're addressing that yeah. as well. One of the things with CBT is like, as you mentioned, you know, that that learning cycle and, and recognizing that that can be a maladaptive learning cycle as well. So you can have a negative feeling, a negative emotion that can affect the types of thoughts that you're having, maybe what you think about yourself, your self-esteem, and it can affect your behavior. So it maybe makes you less motivated to go out and, and see friends, or it makes you more worried or, or scared about things. And so, as you said, Tony, CBT is really about learning and understanding those links, and then within yourself, helping to recognize when you're having those types of feelings, how they might be influencing your thoughts and how they might be influencing your behavior. And, you know, being able to intervene at that point to say, oh, I recognize this as a negative pattern. I'm going to challenge that negative thought. I'm going to see, you know, if there's really evidence to support that thought or whether this is just kind of my negative emotions influencing me, or I'm going to challenge myself to do that thing, you know, that's scary. And I'm going to try and learn from that experience. So it's very much, you know, paired between how you think and how you act and learning that that can really influence how you feel. And I think that's a really empowering thing for a lot of young people, particularly when it's so easy to get sort of stuck into these negative emotion cycles to learn that there are strategies to combat these types of feelings. And even though, you know, there might be external exam pressure or there might be difficulties at home, there are some things I can do to change how I feel and to have a more positive outlook on life. And I think that's one of the reasons why CBT and psychological therapies in particular are kind of really empowering for this age group. Yeah. So we're obviously in a digital health space here. And, uh, you know, part of the advantages is obviously being able to offer it at scale and to close that gap by just offering it um, in a different medium. So how did this translate to um, online delivered interventions? Do you mind walking us through that, Katie? Yeah, so um, digital CBT is offered in a variety of different ways, but often through an app or through a website where there can be a number of different interactive tools online and videos to watch where you can learn about, you know, different aspects of feelings and behaviors and, and thoughts. And so in SilverCloud, we have an iCBT, so internet-based CBT platform that really walks people through all of these different lessons and includes the different tools that, that you would see in face-to-face -face CBT, but has them in an online platform for people to, to interact with. Yeah, just thinking about this age group as well, I think there's a few reasons why digital interventions might be particularly appealing for this age group. There's, you know, quite a lot of qualitative research looking at preferences for different types of interventions and barriers to treatment seeking. One of the ones that comes up, you know, time and again for young people is still the, this stigma and the, the preference for anonymity within therapy. So for someone who's a bit unsure about whether they would want to seek help, I think digital interventions do really offer that opportunity to 
try something out in an anonymous way. You don't have to walk down the street to the therapist's office where you might bump into someone and, you know, have all that anxiety around it. It's kind of a, you know, an equalizer in, in, in that respect. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great point. And, you know, it's, it's reassuring to hear from you that, you know, particularly in that age group, that, that holds true. Tony, from your perspective, and obviously in your experience of working within the U.S. healthcare system, what are the opportunities uh, and challenges that offering all of these treatments from a you know, digital perspective present? Well, I, I think these are wonderful interactions. I think the more people we can reach with these, the better. For those in the U.S., the country is broken down into states. Within states, there are counties that make up the states. 60% of those counties don't have a single practicing psychiatrist. And only a fraction of those are subspecialized in child and adolescent psychiatry. So they're frequently referred to as unicorns. I mean, you know, no type of doctor should be referred to as a unicorn. That's a travesty. So if, if anything we said interests anyone who's thinking about a career, I would strongly encourage you to consider psychiatry or psychology or one of these mental health helping professions because frankly we need you there are some parts of the the country where it's it's literally taking people months and months to be able to see a, a provider in the specialty that they're looking for and and so i think that's one place where telemedicine can really be helpful is to help redistribute that relative shortage in in areas because th this misdistribution really preferences large cities and and urban areas so telemedicine can provide some redistribution of that but we can't create new psychiatrists and therapists absolutely absolutely that's hitting the nail on the head i mean um telemedicine does provide that one thing i i like to say is um you know, it opens up this large gateway for people to access services and at least identify, you know, that they exist. Because not everyone needs to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist in a face-to-face -face or telepsychiatry session. A lot of people can learn the tools that the programs offer, the ICBT tools, by learning the content doing the work, looking at the videos, and then they learn them. And Katie, that's the same in the UK, more or less, right? Is there anything in particular um, that you would like to add from your perspective, speaking about, you know, the NHS and, and the UK and, and the kind of things we're seeing now uh, that the pandemic has exacerbated too? Yeah, I mean, I think in the UK, you know, the, obviously we're talking about a smaller geographical area, but the same problems do exist. Different NHS trusts are funded to different degrees and have, you know, different priorities. And so the level of care that you can get, you know, in, in one town could vary dramatically if you happen to live five miles away in another town that's in, in another county. So I think that's a problem we, we experience as well. I think one of the things that's interesting about the UK as a context is that we do, of course, have a national health service. And within psychological therapies, there's been a big push for adult services, you know, to adopt what's called a, a stepped care model, where people with lower levels of symptoms might be able to access kind of group therapy, or they might be able to access uh, digital intervention, and that, you know, the sort of face-to-face -face therapies are maybe reserved for people who have those higher symptom levels or the greater risk level. That's something, sadly, we haven't seen implemented for children and young people. So the services are really divided in the UK, at least between adult services, which is 18 plus, and children's services. 
And so to be able to see a psychiatrist, you know, you have to be referred to a specific child and adolescent mental health service. And we know that those services are particularly underfunded and particularly under pressure at the moment. So I think, yeah, we're probably experiencing a lot of similar similar problems on a slightly different scale and in a slightly different model. But, you know, I think at least there's some kind of encouraging news here about, you know, people recognizing this deficit and this care gap. And, you know, hopefully that will lead to better funding and more sort of strategic implementation for children and young people, integrating them more effectively with the adult services, because that's another real problem that can come up when somebody, you know, turns 18 and all of a sudden they have to start all over again in terms of accessing care. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of complexities here as well. Yeah, yeah, that's another episode altogether um, on how to implement it. But but it's it's absolutely true. I mean, we are hopefully increasing the offer substantially. But then you know we need to be able to to work with um, services and providers to best implement these treatment pathways, not only to screen and identify who needs you know each particular program the most. But then, you know, how to then offer offer the right program or the right service or when to escalate. And Katie, I want to ask you, because we, you know, um, it's an important aspect of it, parents of anxious children. And we do have a suite of programs that address that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about our resident experts in, in that area. What aspects of that program in particular, the Parents for Anxious Teens, do you think is quite useful or um, different from the one that speaks directly to children? Yeah, so it's quite a different program to, to a lot of what we offer. So a lot of the time, you know, it's people going through uh, psychoeducation materials or information to learn about themselves and, and their own emotions. So we have these two programs, one supporting an anxious child and one for supporting an anxious teen. The content is quite similar in terms of, you know, the core learnings, but there's a lot of examples and kind of stories from people's lives that would be more, you know, appropriate for a child or, or for a teen recognizing those kind of differences in behaviors at different developmental stages. I think there's certain things that are the same actually to a lot of our programs. So it's about, you know, learning that information about anxiety or what it is, how it might look in your child or in your teenager, which is, you know, similar to recognizing anxiety in yourself to some degree. But then they differ in terms of, you know, we're thinking now about how you support someone who's going through these difficult emotions and how you can almost act as kind of a coach or a guide through that period with your child. So helping them to recognize their emotions, helping them to think about problem solving skills, how when you, you know, face an experience like this, and you're having this negative feeling, what's a way that you can recognize that in yourself, and you can, you know, find a way to get out of that negative pattern. So it's sort of training parents to be mini guides and mini coaches for their own children and teenagers. Thanks, Katie. That's great. And look, I mean, it is great to know that these resources exist and are now more prevalent, obviously not not just through Silver Cloud and Amwell, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of places that are offering because, you know, it is true this is this is a crisis and it's important to call it out. Sometimes recognizing it as such is the hardest, but I think that's more than accepted now. And you see mainstream articles that allude to that. Um, just like in other generations, the crisis was of another nature. Mental health is the biggest crisis now facing today's youth. So I think the fact that we're having this conversation in the first place 
should give us hope that there's definitely a lot of resources for people who want to find out what they can do, how they can start to have the conversation, what resources they can access, and what providers are offering, what apps and online interventions there are. So so I think that's great. And, and I thank you both so much for sharing your expertise. Thank, thank you so you. much. Big thanks to my guests, Dr. Anthony Sassong and Dr. Catherine Young for such an insightful conversation. To hear more conversations surrounding digital mental health, you can also listen back to previous episodes of CB Talks. Just find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode in the series, please rate and review CB Talks so that we can help others discover it too. I'll be back next time looking at another way in which digital technologies are involved in mental health. And I hope to see you then. Thank you.